And the insight there with, with better data was teachers are not, you know, we, we are not competing with other schools when it comes to teachers. We are competing with other careers. Right? So we need to make decisions that are based on what's going to be necessary to keep our teachers and not what the school down the street or the school in the next town over is is paying, which is how a lot of companies look at look at what they should be paying their employees. They think about who their competitors are, and then they go and look at what those competitors, you know, as a group are, are paying their employees. And that's, you know, especially after the pandemic, whoever you think your competitors are when it comes to talent is limited at best. There, there's a whole new set of folks that are competing for your employees and that you have to compete against in order to get new employees. And having... You know, that's one of the things that amazes people about our data is that it's totally transparent. Welcome to the Hands-On Business Podcast. Where else are you going to come to get tips, tricks, and advice on growing your business? As you know, what people tend to love about this podcast is the fact that it's a place where you can hear real business leaders discussing systems, methodologies, and strategies that they have used to help them capital growth in their own businesses. So I'm your podcast host, Hakeem Adebiyi, and I've grown several small businesses to multi-million pound enterprises. And during that time, I noticed that there wasn't really a place that focused on where I was, i.e. growing a small business. All the content that seemed to be out there was about big businesses and often just a lot of theory and no practical, implementable advice, which is exactly why I set up this podcast. So really excited to get into it. Happy Welcome listening. back to another episode of the Hands-On Business Podcast. Simple question. Does anyone else like data? Sadly, I do. Uh, uh, now, does that make me boring? I'm not sure because I love data because it always tells me a story. Uh, it tells me about what I'm doing well. It tells me what, what I can improve. And hence, it'll also tell me about what I need to be doing to grow more effectively. So I'm on a quest to get people to see data the way I do. And I think after today's episode, you may well have moved over to my camp because we're going to be talking about how we can actually turn data into dollars. Uh, and obviously, if you're in the UK, pounds and wherever else, euros, etc. Uh, but basically, data into money. So to help me do that, I've enlisted the help of Kerry Sparrow, who is the founder and CEO of Wagescape, as you can see on his cap. Uh, and Wagescape, I'm sure he'll tell you more about that, but it's a company which provides labor market data collection. Uh, and that obviously helps lead to efficiencies and innovation and therefore helping businesses succeed in what is an $80 trillion market. That's data, that is. Uh, so today's episode, as I said, is going to be about turning data into dollars, and we're going to be looking at how you stay ahead of market events by quickly identifying opportunities and risks. So welcome, and thank you very much for coming on, Kerry. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks, Hakeem. Excellent. So I'm going to jump straight in. Um, I really do want to understand how a former uh, U.S. Navy submarine officer, um, you know, having served on many uh, nuclear submarines, has become a big data man. <laughs> so one of the things you got to know about me is that I've always been a real geek uh, and I wear it as a badge of pride. <laughs> uh, but I fell in love with computers uh, right when the PC revolution was was starting, and I went to college uh, to a very good school to learn how to actually build computers. Uh, it was one of the few schools at the time that had a computer engineering uh, program, and I was fortunate enough that uh, my uh, my school was paid for by the Navy. I was on a scholarship uh, with the Navy, and which meant that I had a job immediately upon graduating. And I went and, and was in the submarine force, as you mentioned, 
and served there for, for eight years. But at heart, I was a computer geek. Um, and when I got out of the Navy, I went into management consulting and we did lots of stuff where we were doing really innovative data data analysis, coming up with new research methods, new ways to compile data, to look at organizations through lenses they'd never seen before. And I was responsible for you know, doing that kind of analysis and then creating new types of analysis and then ultimately running uh, running entire businesses in the in our consulting firm around that. I started as a very junior associate, and I left 14 years later as a managing partner uh, responsible for global businesses. And so, so I, you know, data kind of infused you know what I did in the consulting world, and I got exposed to lots of different companies and saw lots of different kind of business challenges and business opportunities. And and then I had the opportunity to go work for a very large global company. Um, here in Minneapolis, that where I was responsible for uh, modernizing their entire workforce management infrastructure, so all their HR systems and processes, and data and governance and structure, um, I was you know a leader in both IT and HR in that in that role. And again, as a, as a kind of as a business leader, got to see firsthand. Um, where there's real opportunities to be more effective uh, through better uses of of data and technology, and also where there's real limitations and um, and and those limitations and the opportunities that that they represented uh, were really the genesis of the idea for Wagescape. Uh, most companies, when it comes to figuring out kind of how much to pay somebody or where to find talent or how to keep talent. Um, or how to develop the people that you have into the right, you know, the careers that are going to be the most fulfilling for them and the most valuable for, you know, themselves and the organization are working with really bad data. By any objective standards, it's really bad. It's late. It's very old. It's very, you know, poorly documented. Um, it's very imprecise. And a lot of times you have to be kind of a data expert in order to deal with it. And I looked at changes that were going on in the market and said, um, you know, there's lots of data that's becoming available through online sources like, you know, massive job boards, for example, which really richly document what position requirements are and, and say what, you know, skills are needed and what they're going to pay and things like that. And nobody seemed to be taking advantage of that. And I talked with, you know, a bunch of technology companies and, you know, as their client and uh, a bunch of consulting firms, I said, hey, you know, I've got, you know, training as an economist and uh, I know that the labor market is a huge market and the information is really bad, which means it's a really inefficient market. And it seems like there's lots of better ways to get much better information. And you guys ought to be on the forefront of this. Um, so what's coming our way as your client? What can I expect that's going to be good? Because that'll help with our efficiency and also help with new ideas and new innovations. And they all looked at me like I had horns grown out of my head. This was <laughs> like eight or nine years ago. And they really didn't see the opportunity. And so that gave me the impetus to form the company that became Wagescape. And the mission of Wagescape was to make the labor market more transparent. But what, the way that we do that is we collect a massive amount of data about who's available, who's hiring, what skills do they want, how much are they going to pay, who has what skills, how are those trends changing, um, how easy or hard, or hard is it to uh, to get the talent that you need. And then we consolidate all of that into a massive data platform um, that we make available to companies of all types for all different kinds of uses. And you wouldn't believe how many people actually depend on information about the job market. And uh, 
so we make it easier for people to see what's actually going on in real time, not based on decisions that were made over a year ago, not based on really small economic sample sizes, but based on huge sample sizes. We track about 85% of all the new jobs that are created in the U.S. and in other developed countries. We're tracking data from about 60 countries worldwide. We're able to figure out what individual jobs are likely to pay. Um, at a very high precision rate for over 50% of all the new jobs that are being created. Um, so it's a very powerful data asset. And then we turn that data asset into lots of forms that uh, companies can be using, whether it's you know applications that they can directly use uh, to answer specific questions, like how much should I pay for a certain job or who's my competitor for that job, all the way to direct data feeds that uh, allow um, data science teams to do in-depth market uh, analysis to data feeds that allow application providers, HR technology and, and financial services uh, and financial tech companies to build our data into their applications to create more value and, and more, uh, more competitiveness uh, for them. And so it's a, you know, we've been doing this for a little over eight years now um, and have really built a good brand in the space. And since the pandemic, especially, the market for insights in terms of what's going on with jobs and pay has really exploded and, and we're benefiting from that. But that's, that's the journey, right? So I started, you know, back in middle school being a computer geek and then went to college for it and got in the Navy uh, because they paid for college and then got, you know, back kind of to my roots over a long and winding road. <laughs> Excellent. So no, appreciate that. And I, I can now see the, the journey because I'm actually, my brother-in-law went into the Marines actually for, for a very similar reason. Um, yep. So yeah, I, I I understand the, uh, the the pathway. So so in terms of um, you're obviously going for big businesses, small businesses because everyone needs data. Um, and so when you say turning data into dollars, what, what's the elevator pitch? What would you say if someone said, "Oh, just tell me exactly how you turn data into dollars in a few in a in a one sentence or a couple of sentences"? What would you say? Well, data's Data fundamentally enables decisions and choices and highlights opportunities, right? And opportunities could be problems that need to be solved, or they could be areas that uh, represent untapped value. And a lot of times companies are flying blind. Uh, they're going off of direct personal experience. They're going off gut. Uh, and the better and more data that you can bring to the question, the more insights that you can see. So in terms of turning it into dollars, you know, on the one, you know, there's three categories of dollars. One is efficiencies that you can get. Um, data allows you to see where things are breaking down or where there's quality problems um, or processes aren't working as, as efficiently as, as they need to be. Or the, you know, in our case, um, maybe your hiring is not as, as good, or maybe you've got a mismatch between what you're paying and what the market is offering. So that's, that's you know, one source. Another is risk. Right, so data helps you identify and and manage risk, which is you know represents a cost. Um, and if you do it really well, it could be a point of competitive advantage uh, as well, depending on the business that you're in. And so, volatility uh, in terms of outcomes, data helps you see those, helps you diagnose what the what the root causes are, uh, and so forth. And then the third category is the one that I love the most, which is around innovation. Data shows you opportunities where there is a need. Um, and that's not being fulfilled, and that need has value in it. And it helps you decide what's the best way to address that need, what's the best way to commercialize it, and translate that into better, you know, better client outcomes, better value delivered to your client, more revenue streams, um, you know, a more scalable organization, lots of different things uh, that could be represented there. 
Um, the pandemic, for example, offered lots of opportunities. It forced companies uh, to um, innovate in ways that they hadn't before. Entire supply chains were restructured as a result of that. And in some cases, folks were just you know working in crisis mode to get that done. But in other cases, data really helped inform what you know how can we how can we innovate uh, from that standpoint. And so, you know, in my case, I'm in the business of data. Right. And so I'm in the business of providing data that addresses uh, a pain point in a very innovative way. Our space didn't really exist before we came along. Um, and so, you know, we've had to have to help define that space and uh, help. Uh, I mean, there were some people that played in, in some, some similar offerings, but but it's really started to take off. Um, and so so it's one thing when you have data that is a viable commercial product. But those situations are fairly rare. Um, in most cases, data can be used in the three areas that I mentioned, you know, efficiency, risk, and, and innovation. And then in terms of um, when you're speaking to people, because obviously this is your business and you're speaking to people about data, what's, what, what would you say is a common misconception people have about data? Because from my point of view, it's always it's very boring. Oh, yeah, you know, it's great to have data, but, you know, paralysis was it analysis by paralysis or paralysis by analysis but you know i think you just articulated there the fact that it gives you opportunities it can it helps your decision making you know it helps with risk management etc so yeah what's the what's the common misconception that you find that uh, people have when you try to explain to them how it can drive financial decision making yeah there's a couple um one has been talked about a lot uh, that I'll mention, and another one that isn't talked about a lot. The first one that has been getting more airtime is that data by itself presents the solution, um, or at least choices. And that's not really true. Uh, anyone who works with uh, works with data in order to inform decisions has got to be able to tell relatable stories about it using data, about what's going on, um, what problems or opportunities, you know, are suggested by that and what to do about it. So people who, you know, have really incorporated using better quality data in the way that they, you know, understand and make decisions or help others make decisions have also got to be good storytellers. They've got to be able to um, make things relatable. You've got to be able to distill all the complexity that you see. I mean, we work with, we work with data sets that are huge. Um, billions of, of items in, in, our, uh, in our data set. We've got to be able to distill all of that down to a story to say, here's what this says and here's what it means and here's what our, our, your choices are uh, from that. So that's one. And that's been getting a fair amount of airtime. And most good data science programs now help, help data scientists and data analysts and others that you know, work with data tell, you know, use data to inform their stories and their narratives. But there's another part of data, which is that data makes makes the job of a, of a manager easier, which is in some cases true, and in other cases is absolutely not true. Because what good quality data will show you is the truth, right? Or a better version of the truth, a more credible, defensible version of the truth. Well, truth in a lot of organizations is based on stories. If you really think about it, it's based on narratives. It's based on individuals that are assessing what's going on and then translating that into their own stories. And those a lot of times do not have the backup of really rich data. And sometimes data shows you things that are contrary or in conflict with the going narrative. So 
in order to be, you know, really good as an organization at using data to drive competitive advantage, to drive better decisions, to pursue better opportunities, managers in those organizations, leaders in those organizations have to be you know, really embrace and be open to um, discovering new truths with data. And frankly, that's very threatening to a lot of folks. And so if you're in the position of needing to advise or bring recommendations or or defend um, decisions, spending choices, you know, and so forth, with data, you have to also understand where is this in conflict with what our current beliefs are in the organization and how do we how do we guide those beliefs? And that's one that doesn't get a lot of airtime, but I faced it when I was in consulting, when I was in business, and now as a as a data provider, I face it all the time. Data presents a version of the truth that on the one hand we could say is more defensible, but on the other hand is different. And that difference can be threatening. So I guess that that really kind of says to me that actually, number one, you need to be working with people who are, um, as I describe it, agnostic to the truth. I.e., they don't care where it comes from; they just want the truth. Because if you get the right, if you get the truth, then you're going to be able to make better decisions, and you're going to automatically be able to drive your business uh, more effectively. And then number two, I suppose, it kind of makes me think that well, you need people who actually are using data from the beginning uh, to make those decisions. Um, because then the narrative that you build is based on truth as opposed to based on <laughs> fiction, for want of a better word. And then you get the data in later, and then you think, oh, what I've been saying for the past three years isn't actually correct. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, folks get wedded to kind of their version of the truth, right? And they start getting invested in it. And working with data requires a little bit of a different, you know, value system a little different, you know, frame of reference because there's always inaccuracies, right? So there's, you know, truth is not 100% accurate. Um, and having folks that kind of embrace the fact that it's not and at the end of the day are also able to say, you know, here's the weaknesses in, in what we know and, and, and but here's the conclusions that we, you know, can state with confidence and are willing to, you know, put bets behind. Those folks, I think, are, you know, in a much better position to take advantage of the value that better sources of data provide uh, than folks that are certain that they know what is going on based on years of experience and, and so forth. Because I guarantee you that, you know, in some measure or another, everything that everyone thinks they know is wrong. It's wrong in some way. It's like the, the song. Everything you know is wrong. In some way or another, there's something <laughs> wrong about it. And so embracing that is really essential, the more that you want to take full advantage of, of better sources of data, which are changing all the time, right? So we're an example of that, where the data that exists now and is available now is totally different than what's going to be available next year or in the next three years. And so, um, you know, you got to be able, you know, it, it, it's, it's not kind of a one-time thing. You've got to be able to incorporate new, you know, new insights um, uh, along the way and take advantage of those. Excellent. And, and, and I always ask my guests, because this is a practical podcast, so people can take stuff away and start getting a real understanding of how they can use the information they hear on it. So have you got some examples that you can share with my audience about, I mean, you talked about innovation, risk, efficiency. Have you got, have you got some examples of when you're able to, either yourself or with uh, your clients, identify significant opportunities or or innovations using your, your, your data and analysis? 
Yeah, I, I have a few, actually. Um, they cover a few different areas. I keep in mind that the data that we deal with is job market data, right? So, yeah. you know, who's hiring? What are they paying? Who's out there? What skills do they have? What skills are needed? You know, and, and how hard is it to, to get the talent? So there's a, a few examples, you know, there. So, you know, here's one. There's a recruiting firm, a uh, fairly large regional recruiting firm that, you know, helps, among other things, uh, small machine shop uh, in the Midwest, small machine shops in the Midwest hire the talent that, that they need. And right after the, the start of the pandemic, um, the machine shops had been offering entry-level welders uh, and machine operators, you know, between 15 and $20 an hour. And the recruiting firm was able to show them, you know, based on our data that the market has now significantly changed and who you thought you were competing for, for talent is totally different because those same people that you're offering 15 to $20 an hour for can now go and work at a retail shop. They can go work at a fast food place and get exactly the same pay, exactly the same pay. So, you know, you're talking about semi-skilled labor, but frankly, they may have better opportunities in places that you've never seen before. And that was a huge eye opener for folks in terms of, you know, their world had now shifted dramatically before they were, you know, hiring folks that were coming out of trade schools and so forth that had invested in their own skills, but the market had changed and those folks had lots of different opportunities uh, now available to them. I sit on the board of my son's school and uh, am fortunate enough to kind of lead the, the HR committee for, for the board. And one of the big questions is what should we pay our, our teachers because inflation was was coming up. And the insight there with, with better data was teachers are not, you know, we, we are not competing with other schools when it comes to teachers. We are competing with other careers because teachers are not leaving. They're not leaving our school to go to a different school that offers more pay because everybody does not pay teachers. Nobody pays teachers what to, what they should be paid. Um, in a lot of cases, they're not even paying enough to, you know, have a, have a decent living without another job. They're leaving to pursue a different career. Um, so they're, they're setting aside their calling for teaching and moving away. So we need to make decisions that are based on what's going to be necessary to keep our teachers and not what the school down the street or the school in the next town over is, is paying, which is how a lot of companies look at, look at what they should be paying their employees. They think about who their competitors are, and then they go and look at what those competitors, you know, as a group are, are paying their employees. And that's, you know, especially after the pandemic, whoever you think your competitors are when it comes to talent is limited at best. There, there's a whole new set of folks that are competing for your employees and that you have to compete against in order to get new employees. And having, you know, that's one of the things that amazes people about our data is that it's totally transparent. Uh, so, you know, in the past folks could never see what is pay that's being offered in an individual company by law, by law, the, the, you know, because antitrust considerations did not allow that, but our data comes from, you know, what companies are saying they're going to be paying, uh, for new positions. And we just aggregated it at a massive level. And, uh, um, as a result, uh, folks that use our data can see exactly who's competing for the same, the same talent and exactly what those folks are planning to pay for those positions. And so that level of transparency has never been available before. I mean, that's, that's one thing. Um, here's, I, I can keep going with other examples, right? We can talk about investment funds that recognize that, just, you know, one, one company was cutting back on the hiring of their sales force. And that, that implied that they were going to be facing 
um, cutbacks in terms of their revenue projections. And sure enough, a month later in a quarterly report, that's exactly what was reported. And so, you know, this was, you know, a totally different use case for, for data where it was a predictive indicator of future performance, uh, based on, on changes in terms of what, what, what their hiring patterns were. Um, so yeah, there's lots yeah, of practical I'll, uses. I, I was just going to ask you about the, uh, that job data in terms of, um, comparing to competitors because, that's what most, because a lot of the data I've used when we've been looking at recruitment, et cetera, or you're not even looking at, um, you know, paying the right amount for your staff to make sure. You generally look at your industry, you look across your industry and see what other people are paying. And, and actually, I, ne- I never thought about, actually, you, 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 your staff are not only being attracted by people in your industry or your type of company. So actually just looking at what other companies are paying, is no guarantee that you're going to be paying them the right the right level of pay because they can go somewhere else and do something else, don't they? Uh, yeah. That's a really interesting. I've never even thought about that. Yeah, it's absolutely true. It's especially true right now, and and not only industry but also location. You know, with remote work, yeah. people can be recruited from anywhere in the world. Um, yeah. And so, and and the other thing is with the labor market as tight as it continues to be, um, every one of your employees. Top to bottom is a target for an unknown number of companies uh, yeah. that are trying to recruit them away. I guarantee it. And so retention now becomes a really big issue. And understanding what's going on in the market, you know, in the past, the conventional wisdom was people don't leave because of pay, they leave because of bad managers, or bad cultures. Well, they'll still leave for bad managers and bad cultures. But, but over the last two years, advertised pay levels have gone up 20% a year across all types of jobs and, and all markets on average. Um, and some are much higher and a few are a little bit lower than that. And so, you know, if somebody on your team is getting offered a 30% raise or just walking down the street to a different company, that's especially in an era where inflation is higher than it's been in our lifetimes, that's a really big deal and people will take that. And so now retention takes on a totally different, a totally different meaning. Right, uh, because before it was all about culture and kind of management engagement and so forth, and and now it's got to be about pay competitiveness as well, and people know that. Yeah, no, I think so. And and and, and as you said, things are changing so rapidly. So how do you um, stay ahead? Number one of what the market trends are, and then because you're in a competitive environment, how do you stay ahead of um, your your competitors who are also offering data services to make sure that actually your data is up to date it's relevant and actually you're given the narrative that people uh, need to hear i was going to say want to hear but they don't always want to yeah so you know we put a lot of thought into where we play and how we play um there's lots of stuff that that we could do we focus on being a data asset um so we sell applications that let people uh see um kind of see what the market is doing but most of our revenue comes from um, selling the data itself to companies that build it into their own applications that then they sell to other folks. So like recruiting applications where recruiters can now yeah. see real time when they open up a new job requisition, they can see here's what the prevailing rate is for that, uh, that job in that specific market as of right now, last 30 days, um, or other types of applications as well. And so... You know, we we focus on on making sure that our data asset is as powerful as it needs to be, and then we also um, 
we're very picky about where we play in terms of how we deliver it. And we, we work with partners, uh, you know, so an implication, you know, in our example is that um, we deliver our data mostly through partners um, that, uh, that know how to, you know, build it into applications that uh, uh, meet the, the use case of, of their specific client base. Because otherwise we'd have to build like countless applications and be experts at building and maintaining and, you know, all those applications. And, and the applications that we do build, we're very good at. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like the utilities, the last mile problem, you know, that most of the cost comes from getting the, the power, the last mile to the end user. And uh, it's the same thing with, with data is that, you know, data has to be relevant to a specific business context, a specific process, specific use case, and there's tons of them. So we, we make very deliberate choices about where we can be, you know, where we invest in being good and uh, uh, where we don't invest in being good. And we've, you know, there's a number of, you know, the most important things that we do is deciding where not to play uh, or how not to play. Which I think is very important, actually. I mean, yeah, if, if wh- who, who are you going to work with um, is critical because <laughs> you can work with everybody, but that's just a, a waste of energy in a lot of instances. So, so I mean, obviously you were talking uh, about before, you know, the people who have data have to ha- be able to create narratives uh, and create right narratives. So what, what's your process in turn of, you know, you've got lots of data. How do you then turn that raw data into actionable insights that's going to be really valuable for, for your clients? So we're pretty lucky because of what I was just talking about is that um, we support, you know, we support a whole range of use cases. Uh, And so um, there, the narrative that we have to tell is how our data can create more value for our partners and how they can translate our data easily into a greater competitive distinction in their offerings or new revenue streams. And every one of our partners makes money off of our data. Um, And so that's one part for the applications we sell. We have to really know the user base. We have to know how they work. We have to know, and, and it's not just the problems, you know, on paper that they solve. We have to know the work environment that they're in. We have to know what pressures they're under, who, which leaders they support, um, what kind of decisions those folks need to make. We also have to stay in touch with, with what's going on in the, you know, the broader market overall. And then we have to create narratives that show how we're going to help them serve their companies better and in the process make their lives and jobs easier. So there's a degree of kind of user intimacy that we have to, you know, that we have to, you know, be really good at. Uh, when we're delivering end solutions to users. And then there's also a degree of kind of business intimacy that we have to have in order to be able to convince people and and convince is, is perhaps too harsh a word, but be able to demonstrate to folks that there's an opportunity for them to, you know, bring even more value to their clients and make more money. And and do you still get in, in this data rich age where I think people, well, I hoped people would understand the value of data, that there's still people that um, are skeptical uh, in terms of okay, yeah, you can give me loads and loads of data, uh, but actually, is it really going to make a difference to grow my business? Do you, do you, do you have to show examples? Um, and have you got you know some examples that you could just uh, share in terms of how you how you would convince somebody who's a bit skeptical on yeah that data looks great, but how am I going to use it? 
Yeah, the more that you have to convince people about kind of where the data comes from and whether it's credible or not, and then how to interpret it, the more friction you're creating in the yeah. uh, in the decision process, and the more that you have to invest your own capital in shoring up your credibility. Um, and so, more and more, and there's a lot of folks that have gone down the path of using really da- you know rich kind of analytics tools, business intelligence tools, and, and so forth. And those are all essential. But but where we're really turning into is to make the intelligence, so not just not the data, but the intelligence from the data, um, easily consumable. So as an example, we offer a business intelligence application specifically for folks that are making pay decisions to understand kind of what the market for individual jobs looks like, who's hiring, what the patrons are, and so forth. That's all good, and it serves a specific audience um, that uh, you know is typically uh, folks in talent analytics or in compensation management or for very large recruiting companies. But there's another audience that needs to know what's going on with pay and hiring and competition that are recruiters, and those folks don't need another app. They don't need another application. They don't need a business intelligence application. What they need is the answer. And they need the answer without having to look somewhere else for it. And so building in the intelligence from our data into the applications that they already work with in a way that just presents it as the answer. You open a job rec, a new job rec, here's what the pay is. You know, if you want to know who the competitors are, click down one and it'll show you. But you don't even have to think about there's the answer, right? You don't have to think about where the data comes from or anything like that. And more and more, this idea of kind of pervasive um, and embedded intelligence, not just data, but intelligence, I think is, you know, is, is the direction that we're pursuing. And I think anybody who works with data should really think about kind of what's the friction between getting the data and then affecting a decision and getting, and almost like, you know, if you're familiar with lean, leaning out that whole process, you know, recognizing where there's friction and getting rid of those friction points. And some of it, you know, traditionally the approach has been around education, um, but more and more, I think it's, it's just about making it so that it's obvious to folks. And, and is it, I'm just asking, if, if you're not a data driven person, but you realize the importance of having data to make decisions, um, what, what sort of advice do you have for that sort of person? Cause especially when you're in a, in a smaller business, you may realize, yeah, I need the data. You may even know where to get the data from, but you don't really know how to interpret it. Yeah, if you don't know how to use the data, then I think the first step is figure that out, right? And so it's, you know, put people around you, um, either in the organization or in your own kind of, you know, your own personal networks that can help, help, you know, bring to life how data can drive better performance and how they use data and how you should think about about using data before you go and invest in big systems where the value proposition is you're going to have so much more data that's better for you and make better decisions about if you don't know how to use the data in the first place it's not going to do you any good you're just going to spend a lot of money and get really frustrated like a whole bunch of companies have so the first thing i think is about kind of getting smart about that and then applying that with the data that you already have everybody's got some some degree of data around them. and then based on that take a good look at where are the areas where you've got pain in the business and start to explore what options you've got around bringing better data to, you know, um, highlight what's really going on in those painful areas and what you can do about it. But I think it starts, you know, your whole point when, if you're not really a data person, um, if you're not a data person and you don't do something about that, then you're not really going to be able to take better advantage of data. But, but frankly, everybody drives a car. I mean, think about like a car, right? There's a ton of data that you're exposed to inside the car and it sits mostly in your dashboard. 
and they make it super easy. All the car manufacturers make it super easy for you to understand what's going on. A warning light comes on. Hey, it's labeled. You know, there's a problem there. The speedometer, you know, any of the other gauges, the odometer, super easy to understand, right? And so you don't have to overcomplicate, you know, the data if the insights are delivered in a way that's pretty intuitive. Um, so there's there's ways to start, even if you think you're not a, not a data person, I think you're probably dealing with more data than you recognize. And I think that's a really good point. I, I think it's um, everybody's probably a data person. Probably just everybody doesn't know what data they require. Because I think that analogy you've just <laughs> given of the car is a perfect example. I don't think there's many people who are in the car thinking, oh, I'm overwhelmed by the data. Oh, no, turn it off. Uh, I think people find data that is useful, beneficial. Uh, and I think sometimes it's just and – that, and that's what I'm always trying to do is explain to people because I think people think I love love data for the sake of data. Uh, I actually love data because yeah. it actually helps me make better decisions. Yeah, I oh, mean, sorry, just we'll just kind of grind the whole car analogy down even more. Uh, if you really think about it, in most modern cars, there's the equivalent of what, you know, 15 years ago we would have called a supercomputer. And it's mo yeah. monitoring thousands of sensor points, you know, on a on a microsecond basis, right? And so it's a huge data operation. And at the end of it, you know, at the end of that, it translates that into intelligence, that literally a 15-year-old can use in order to drive more safely and, and get where they need to go. And so, you know, that that's, I think, a really good example of removing all the frictions between the data and the intelligence. Yeah, and I, and I think even some of the um, more, I mean, I do a lot of online stuff, and even if you look at Google, um, you know, all the Google console stuff, then that's, if you don't know what you're looking for, that can look very complex. If you do know what you're looking for, <laughs> it's an absolute minefield of information. And Facebook's another one. Facebook, if I look at data, and this maybe this is why I like data so much. Uh, you know, when when I when I was a young fledgling commercial person, and you try to do uh, marketing campaigns, the amount of work you had to do to get information on your customers uh, was significant, just to understand your demographics, etc. Whereas now. You look into the back of a Facebook and the amount of data on every single person that you want to target is, is so rich that I think if you come from where I've been, <laughs> you, you, you are almost delirious with the amount of data you can now get at a click of a button. Well, especially from a commercial standpoint, you know, and a targeted marketing and sales standpoint, what's available now is unbelievable. Yeah, um, the ability to put your message in the hands of exactly the people that need to hear it in a way that they need to hear it, um, and to do that basically automatically is unbelievable. We we use those capabilities too, and when we first started getting into it, uh, I was blown away at how easy it was for us to take a lot of the guesswork out of what should we be doing. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and from your from your uh, standpoint, uh, we've talked a bit about how things have changed. So, what, what what have been the biggest changes you'd say in terms of identifying opportunities and risks using data in over the last say three or four years? And what do you think are going to be the next the next wave of changes that people should be at least looking out for, thinking about as they move forward? I mean, it's really broad. Um, it's really broad broad topic. Uh, I think that there's innovations that are going on uh, all over the place. Um, one, 
you know, one one big change that's relevant to what we do is that the labor market is in total disequilibrium right now. All the assumptions that people had over their careers in terms of how, you know, how the demand and supply for jobs and pay works are no longer applicable. And it's important to understand kind of, but but there's also no new paradigm there. Um, remote work hasn't settled out. Pay inflation hasn't gone down. Pay comp- Pay-based competition is still as strong as ever. Um, the idea that companies are looking at skills instead of just jobs now is, is taking on steam. So there's all kinds of new things, um, that companies have to deal with and it hasn't settled out into a new paradigm yet, I don't think, um, regardless of what, what pundits might, might say. So that's one, you know, one big change. Um, the advent of large language models, I won't say AI because AI has been around for a while and it's been gaining steam for a while and it's everywhere. Frankly, there's devices in every home that have, you know, um, AI-based uh, intelligence built into them that make our lives a lot easier. So, so it's not just AI, but in particular, large language models are very disruptive um, and are going to continue to be uh, very disruptive. Uh, every conversation I have is, uh, um, you know, includes some some mention of that, and it's one that it's, you know, in the last year, it's been so easy to basically get your own personal assistant to help write anything or plan anything, or, you know, it's. It's amazing. And all that's going to become even more pervasive as, as that kind of, you know, that kind of capability is built into search engines as it's built into, you know, any kind of user application is built into things like Siri and Alexa and personal assistants. Um, so that's, that's going to be really disruptive. And lots of people's jobs are, are going to be influenced. I think mostly in the, in the vast majority of cases for the positive, I think that there's lots of more value, you know, I think jobs will become much more fulfilling um, when they can use those capabilities effectively. So that's the second one. The third one I would say is transparency. And this is one that I don't think is on people's radar screen. In my world, that typically uh, relates to like wage transparency. And there's the growing number of states in the U.S. that are requiring uh, companies to post ranges on jobs. But transparency extends well beyond that. I can tell you, uh, for example, um, Transparency around equity practices in companies, and I'm not I'm not talking about um, stock equity, uh, stock based. I'm talking about equitable practices across, you know, employee segments, you know, racial segments, um, ethnicity segments, uh, gender segments. Uh, there's a lot of transparency that is coming down the road there that I think will be shocking to folks because. Um, even though companies tend to guard that information very closely, there's lots of signals that they provide in the market in terms of what's actually going on. You know, so which employee, you know, which employees come to them, which ones leave, how long do they stay, and so forth. And this is just one example. Uh, so you know, there's all kinds of other examples when it comes to you know supply chain processes and retail customers and all kinds of things where transparency is becoming easier to um, create, and um, that's going to be very, very uncomfortable. Uh, for lots of folks. And so if I were to predict and say three years from now, what are we going to be, you know, what are we going to say were the biggest changes? I think AI would still be on the list, you know, with, with the large language models, but this whole idea of transparency will, will shake things up. And just on that transparency thing, because obviously you mentioned diversity and and I've looked, um, and I haven't necessarily got the data, but people look obviously get data about diversity in organisations, and that obviously is going to affect which people go there and whether they're going to feel they're going to be comfortable. Uh, and everyone's now reporting on their diversity stats. But I've noticed when I look at some diversity stats, you you have to really dig in to get a real sense of what's happening because you know you might have 
loads of um, diversity down at the bottom. But really, what say so if I'm looking, I'm looking at well, what's the diversity like at uh, senior management level? And that could be very. I mean, I've worked in companies where it's absolutely poor. I'm the I'm the only person of, of any sort of like diverse in in the senior management team. But then they'll say, oh yeah, but we're great because if you look at the amount of women in the sales team, or you look at the amount of Asians in this particular area, then when you add it up in terms of the whole of the organisation, it looks great. So I'm just wondering. Is that something that's going to be now very easy when you talk about transparency? Is that something that's going to change in terms of the ease of me being able to look at it? Because at the moment, when I look at it, I have to personally do lots of digging to to, to see that and see what what it's really saying to me, rather than just looking at some facts and figures for, that the company would provide. It's going to blow you away. Yeah. Okay. Not to, I'm not usually a hyperbolic in in the way that I talk, but I know firsthand that what is is becoming available in the market is going to absolutely blow people away. Because what you just said is right. I mean, where do people get diversity information now? They get it from census data, which is taken, you know, every 10 years. Um, They get it from uh, data that companies are mandated to report. And then they get it from, you know, especially consulting firms that have to go around and and actually, you know, get really innovative in terms of how they, they collect that data. Not true going forward. When you're able to identify gender, ethnicity, national background from individuals based on their online profiles and, and other data sources, and now you can compile it to show, okay, what's the career path for those individuals? And you can do this entirely outside of the organizations that they work from, entirely legally based on information that you are completely permitted to to get. Now, suddenly the control over what diversity information is being shared with the public, which companies have really closely guarded is out of their hands. It's entirely out of their hands. And two years ago, I got asked if we provided data about um, prevalence of, uh, uh, you know, gender-based prevalence and ethnicity-based prevalence in certain jobs. And I said, that data doesn't exist, but we've got partners now that are experts in figuring that out. And that data is just now coming to the market and as it comes to the market, it is going to change a lot of people's world. The whole, yeah, no, the whole, that. you know, the 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 whole approach companies take around diversity fundamentally, when it comes to the information about it, regardless of what they say, when it comes to the information about their own diversity, they guard it very, very jealously. <laughs> um, they want very tight controls over what what is presented, and that control is is going to be taken away. So yeah, so it, it, that's that's going to be very interesting to see how that how especially large companies because I think large companies are very good at making sure that they look like they're ticking every single box even when they're not ticking boxes. I'm not I'm not just talking about diversity; that's just general across the board because they've got teams of people who are working on it and creating, as we described at the beginning, narratives which they want the outside world to see. But what you're saying is obviously the data. Uh, the data will tell the truth. So if, if they are actually doing all the things, the data will say they're doing those things. Uh, and if they're not, then the data will tell them, well, tell the, the rest of the world that actually the narrative they've been giving you for a period of time is not actually 100% accurate. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example um, since we're on the topic of this is a this was a consulting project that I was involved with a number of years ago, and the company in particular was um, very concerned that they did not have enough female representation at at senior management levels. And so, it turns out that um, 
with access to the right data source, this is a fairly simple problem to diagnose. And in this company, they had lots of different businesses and they had a lot of history in terms of, you know, what was the career path for all of their employees. And, And very quickly, the analytics team was able to go in and say, okay, here's Here's how women get segmented. Here's when they leave the organization. Here's the career paths they take. And they showed very clearly that they were falling out disproportionately before they got to the critical kind of leadership positions that then formed the career experiences that would take them to top management. They were falling out disproportionately before they got there. And then the other thing was, is that along the way, they were they were changing from commercial jobs into um, into functional jobs. Uh, so like going from sales into HR or finance or um, strategy, right? And and so there were two dynamics that were going on there. And clicking down on that, it was very easy to see that there were a small number of spots in the organization that were driving those negative results, very small number, right? And so from a leadership standpoint, the implications are very clear. Focus on those small number of spots in terms of getting them to, you know, change the way that they they approach the development of of women in in their their organizations, and you'll have a pretty, you know, you'll have an outsized impact on 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 the results. So, what do you think happened to that study? Uh, they probably buried it. <laughs> it it was shelved immediately. It never saw the light <laughs> yeah. of day. Yeah, okay. so this is how threatening those kinds of uh, things are. Right. And and that's exactly the kind of thing that the data that is now available. You think about it. There are um, just with LinkedIn alone, there are probably about 800 million career profiles. And that number is probably actually understated uh, available online that have everybody's career history. And if you're able to go in and say, OK, I'm able to figure out now whether this is, a you know, what what gender this individual is, I'm able to go in and figure out kind of what ethnicity they are. And it doesn't have to be 100% accurate. It can be maybe 98% accurate, right? But I'm now able to look at their career histories and do exactly the kind of analysis that I just mentioned, which required access to internal systems before. Now you don't need that, okay? Now yeah. you can go and get data that's outside of the organization. You can do exactly that. And now you can look across companies and say, Who's doing the best at promoting their women? Who's doing the best at promoting people of color that are offering kind of the most, you know, fulfilling career? Who Who's the best at creating talent that then goes on to even more success as they go to other organizations? All that stuff is in the realm of possibility. And so if you are, you know, in the business of looking at um, at social equity uh, issues and creating applications or consulting services around that, you have tremendous opportunities in front of you because, what you have available, what's coming available now is really going to change your world and change what you can bring to the market. And I suppose, I mean, I was just thinking about the example you just given, and it's almost like, well, they were playing lip service because they felt, oh, well, we've got too few women. Um, but And they, they knew they should change it, but they didn't really want to change it. I was just thinking, if there, if there, I suppose there is data now if there, that links the um, the diversity in the company to the success or the growth of a company, because I, I, I'm just thinking through why they would want. To sh- I knew they would have done, but I was just thinking why would they want to show it? Because if there's evidence and data that shows actually the more diverse companies you have, um, then the better uh, you know you perform. Then that might have been an impetus to actually bring that data to the fore and say, well, actually we're gonna we're gonna share this because it actually it's not just about having more diversity; it's about actually developing a better company. Yeah. And, and anymore, I mean, in today's world, 
you cannot afford to ignore talent, right? Yeah. And so if you if if you're treating different sectors of uh, segments of talent differently in a way that holds some back or inhibits your access to their full capabilities, it's it's not just a question of creating a more effective work environment and a more productive and and stronger business results because of you know how diverse perspectives come to the table. It's a significant blind spot in terms of your talent capacity. Period. You're limiting your you know the talent that you you have available to you, and that's you know. If you're a board, you should be thinking through both of those lenses. You know, are we getting the culture that drives results the way that we want from having kind of the broadest range of perspectives and, and, and experiences available to us? And also, are we limiting our access to talent because of, of our practices that exclude or, or inhibit certain segments uh, of, of our own employees and potential employees? It's, it's a very practical yeah. issue in my mind. Changing it no, is no, not it practical is. at all. But no, it's not. And it, the reason. That, oh, sorry, go. On. No, no, go ahead. Now I was going to say. You get yeah, me on a I, rant I remember, about this one. I care about it a lot. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, I, 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 I remember having a com. I remember having a conversation um, with somebody about. Um, it's actually Lewis Hamilton, um, and the and the person in question was saying, "Oh, yeah, but um, I, 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 Lewis Hamilton always goes on about diversity and racing drive." In, 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 you know, Formula One racing. Uh, and that person said to me, and maybe it's just that, um, you know, ethnic minorities don't want to drive cars. And I said, mm. I said, well, I couldn't really discuss that because I don't know enough about Formula One racing. I said, but if I look at uh, an example of the business I've been in all my life, pharmaceuticals, I said, I know for a fact that if you look at a pharmaceutical sales team, in, in, in the companies I've worked in, you'd probably say about 60 or 70% of them are Asians. I said, if you move to first-line management, you've got about 30% of those are Asians. Uh, if you then move up to you know, second-line management, you drop down to about 5%. And if you got to any senior level, if you've got 1%, and I said, and I can guarantee you they all want to move on. And actually, so that some of those people in that sales team and the, and the regional management team are some of the best people you, you, you would have come across. So that can't be natural selection that can't be just the oh no that's organizational bias is what it is yeah it's either overt or it's subconscious organizational bias um and and that is still happening uh to a large you know a large degree and it's you know largely you know in, in in many cases the you know addressing it runs into significant resistance and i think a lot of organizations still are not as equipped as they need to be uh, to um, uh, be able to diagnose what's going on there, because once you diagnose it, it you know it, you may be faced with some hard choices, but at least the choices will be clear. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting one because I mean, obviously, you, you're selling your services, uh, and I've always been in a, an environment where I'm selling, so I've always I've always just wanted the best person because if I get if I if I use my and we've all got them. If I use my conscious or unconscious bias to get somebody in, and they're not performing, then that affects me. So I've I've, I've always been. I just want the best. I don't care what you look like, <laughs> what you sound like. If you can, if you can actually help my business grow, I want you in. I want you in my business. Uh, but I suppose not. Not every business is like that. And actually, even it, even there are some businesses like that where people still believe that. Well, if you look like me. Uh, then actually you're going to be good because I was good. So therefore, everyone has to try and look like me. 
that goes back to you know the point around you know everybody in some degree is wrong, right? So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, recognizing your own blind spots, I think, is is an essential you know quality of a good leader. Yeah. So so on on that note, because um, we come into the to the, the end of our session, it's been very, very useful. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed talking about data, and I'm sure that um, uh, there, there's lots of things you you you've mentioned that. Uh, will make people think twice about why they should be looking at data, you know. And I, I think the thing you said at the top, in terms of looking at, it helps you refine and make more efficient processes. It helps you manage risk better, and it helps you actually identify opportunities and and innovative areas. I think it, if, if you took nothing else out of it, that should be enough for you to think mm, maybe I should be looking at data a bit more closely. So, so from your point of view, I mean, if if somebody, if you if you were speaking to somebody who is really wanting some data thinking about data what where where should they start uh obviously they'd start with speaking to, to, to you and wagescape if it's if it's uh specifically the data around labor uh but you know if you get any advice to people or any any last tips to leave with the audience yeah so um in terms of figuring i, I think staying in touch with uh how uh how other people are either creating, you know, intelligence that you can turn into opportunity, um, or how other people are doing it themselves, um, is kind of an ongoing practice that folks need to need to embrace. And um, you've got lots of help available to you. Um, so, if you want to understand how to use your your tools from Google, you know, more effectively, there's lots of self-study that you can do through online yeah. videos that are three or five minutes long that you know, really make it bite-sized. There's, you know, if you're working with, you know, technology vendors, you, you know, they'd be more than happy to talk to you about cases where, you know, data coming out of their systems is, is translating into money and opportunity for their other clients. And they're happy to get your views on where are your pain points and, and, you know, any suggestions that you might have or collaboration that you can do with them in terms of how to, how, how what they do can, can improve those. So there's lots of resources around you. It's just about asking the questions, say, you know, what's coming down the road or what are we not taking advantage of that we should be? And I think demanding that any of your, you know, technology partners, consulting partners, um, supply chain partners understand your business and bring those insights to you is essential for any business as well. So it's totally reasonable to expect that they should be bringing ideas to you. So take advantage of the help. That would be one of my best, you know, one of the first things I would say. No, and I appreciate that. And obviously, I'm going to drop uh, your contact details in the link because guaranteed there'll be people. Um, well, I know that I know there's listeners and viewers of mine that are in businesses where they where they probably do more need more data around the labour market and what's going on in jobs, etc., and recruitment. So I'll I'll put that in the link when the podcast is released. So, uh, Kerry Sp- Sparrow, thank you very very much for your time on today's episode. Hakeem, it's a pleasure talking with you. I had a great time in this conversation. And so thank you very much for inviting me. No, no, my pleasure. So I hope that from that episode, you've got some real implementable takeaways that you can start using in your business. And hopefully you've now started to come over to the dark side, i.e. the data side. Because if you took nothing else away from what Kerry said, uh, number one, If you understand data and you know what to do with it, it can help you make better decisions. Number two, it can help you uh, find better opportunities and it can make, number three, your processes more efficient. And number four, and probably one of the most important things, it can help you identify 
innovations, which will then, all of those things will lead to growth within your business. Now, don't forget, if you want to get the show notes of every episode, then sign up to our mailing list and you find that at www.thesalesaccelerationformula.com forward slash podcast hyphen show hyphen notes. And as always, prescribe, like, and share with your friends, colleagues, and anyone else who you think may be interested. But most of all, keep the feedback coming so that we can continue to improve and give you more of what you like. Now, I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And as I always do, keep listening and keep growing.